What exactly is the optimal checkout experience in a device-agnostic world? How do you reduce checkout friction and drive up average order value on not just desktop computers, but also tablets and mobile devices? My guest in today's show heads up an e-commerce SaaS platform, software as a service platform, with over 12,000 active stores on his platform. He's going to take us through the optimal shopping cart process. So stay tuned. Welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast show, where we interview founders of fast-growing seven- and eight-figure e-commerce businesses and e-commerce experts. They'll tell their stories, share how they 2X their businesses, and inspire you to take action in your own online retail business today. And now, here he is, the man in the mix, Kunle Campbell. Hi, 2Xers. Welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast show. I'm your host, Kunle Campbell, and this is the podcast where I interview e-commerce entrepreneurs and online marketing experts who will help you uncover new e-commerce marketing tactics and strategies to help you, my fellow 2Xers and listeners, double specific e-commerce metrics in your online stores. So if you're looking to double metrics such as conversions, average order value, repeat customers, traffic, and ultimately sales, you are in the right place. On today's show, I have with me Rick Wilson. He is the president of Meaver, which is an e-commerce SAS or software as a service platform founded in 1997. Yes, I know back in 1997, software as a service was not even mainstream or anything like that. But Miva was initially a shopping cart and eventually migrated to the cloud in 2009. And according to internet trends and intelligence platform built with, um, Miva currently has about 27,000 e-commerce websites running on Miva. Well, back to Rick. Rick has well over 15 years executive level experience in e-commerce. He was part of the team that acquired Miva from its parent company in 2009 and spearheaded Miva's transition to an SAS platform. Welcome to the show, Rick. Um, Could you take a minute or two to tell um, our listeners about yourself, please? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so yeah, uh, my name is Rick Wilson. I'm president of Miva and we're based here in San Diego, California, right. which uh, isn't the normal spot for tech companies, but we're close <laughs> enough and it's a gorgeous place. So <laughs> it keeps us out of uh, it keeps us out of the rat race a little bit. I uh, I came to work for the original Miva mm-hmm. for the original founder of the original Miva back in 1999, about 2 years after the company had started. So the original founder of the company had had an early web hosting company and he had started a scripting language, um, think PHP uh, or even Rails in today's world. Mm-hmm. And he started a scripting language and that language became sort of a cult hit and he wanted to sell the tool to use the language to other web hosting companies. So he um, he jettisoned the original hosting company and built a, built a company around this language. And... Um, you know, as history has sort of shown, there's not a lot of big companies built just around languages. There has to be a thing that drives them. So in 1997, they wrote their first shopping cart application. And, that, and back then it was called HTML script was the scripting language and cool cat with K's and cat was for catalog. It was all very 90s of them <laughs> was the first, uh, the first iteration of the shopping cart platform. And it became also a cult hit so much so that by the end of 97, the original founder knew that we have something that's actually has some legs here that we can build on. We got to fix these naming problems among some other things. <laughs> and so they invented the name Miva out of thin air. Uh, a lot of people think it's an acronym. Um, it's not, it is uh, in, it is a, a slight tweak on the German pronunciation of the Egyptian hieroglyph of the word cat. Um, right. But much more importantly, <laughs> it was a uh, four letter word that they were able to buy the domain for in 1998 and that was um, not trademarked. And so here was this great brand that sort of invented out of thin air and the name Miva came from that. And then Miva Merchant became the initial product, right? The, the e-commerce software product. And you're correct. SaaS didn't exist back then. There was, uh, it was funny. We were really an early software as a service enabler, but what we did 
was we sold our software to web hosting companies. So mm-hmm. in today's in today's parlance, that would be you know the GoDaddies of the world. But back then, we would go to there was thousands and thousands of them, and we went and traveled all over the world selling to web hosting companies, and then they would turn around and include our e-commerce package in their web hosting. And so you could almost see the writing on the wall that software as a service was coming, but Mm -hmm. you were correct, it hadn't matured yet. And that's how the company sold its product from 1997 really, or 1998, through um, 2009. And then we had sold the company in 2003 to what was a a publicly traded pay-per-click marketing firm they actually had a big presence over in in London as well. They were originally known as Find What, and then they bought a company in London called eSpotting, and they merged those with us and rebranded everything as Miva. Um, and so Miva for a while was both a marketing company and a e-commerce platform. Hmm. And then that company sort of split everything back up, and we reacquired the original Miva assets, including the name. So that's how that's at a very fast pace how we got here. Well, quite detailed because I recall back in 2005, that was my first, that was the first time I actually you know, used WordPress, 2004 yep. and 2005. And I dabbled into, or I was thinking about going into e-commerce at the time and Miva, the name Miva, I recall popped up. And yes, you, you are actually, well, you, you're right. I, I actually remember seeing like, um, additional services from Miva, like online marketing services being offered by Miva. And it confused me a little bit at the time. But it's interesting. You've been around for a long time, Rick. Could you just, you know, take us through what you think or how you think e-commerce has evolved from the 90s um, through to the dot-com boom, through to the the era of Zappos and you know other e-commerce in early two thousand and now today what's what's been the transition like in the journey of e-commerce? Sure. So there, there's a couple of ways I can answer that. And before I do, let me get let me get some guidance from you. Okay. There's a there's there's the Amazon version of e-commerce, which there's a few companies in the world, including obviously Zappos as part of Amazon, fighting it out for that space. So you have Amazon and Apple and Walmart and a few other players, um, Alibaba. Mm-hmm. Then there's a lot of large brands, let's take like a Nike, and obviously e-commerce is going to be part of just their standard retail strategy. And then there's really the world of everyone else. Mm-hmm. And so to me, the evolution that's been most interesting is that world of everyone else. Um, so I hope that's okay to talk about that group. Fantastic. Um, we uh, Most of the listeners are mid-tier retailers anyway. So, Okay, perfect. So – when we started in the 90s, what you found was you had very, very technical people who had access to a product or an edge. And some of that hasn't changed that much. Mm-hmm. Um, there always has been some sort of an edge, be it in the 90s, first mover advantage. If you were the first person to sell bowling balls online, there's a reasonable chance that you're still the biggest bowling ball seller there is. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you saw in the world of e-commerce was a first mover advantage where someone had access to product at a decent price or at a great price and they they just got it out there and put it up. And if you were one of the first two or three and had a decent domain name, you could win your category at least for a period of time. That's changed radically. You know, now depending on the size of the category, Amazon obviously loves to get people selling on Amazon so they can see the sales data and then they can decide if they want to compete with you or not. And so, what you saw start to change, or what we saw start to change, was people um, really going for technical advantages for a while. And I would say that I would put that period as sort of 2000 to to 2009, where if you were an SEO master, if you could game Google. You could really get an edge, and as long as you could get you know your products at a decent price, you could get an edge and and that was a that was a leading strategy for really most of the two thousands absolutely and, and what I think happened I think two things really happened to deflate that strategy and it 's not that SEO is not important SEO is, is very important i mean but two things the the mobile revolution, which no one saw coming mm. i mean Absolutely, no one before. I mean, they've been predicting it since the nineties, but no one so so knew exactly when it will come. 
Um, a- absolutely. And they didn't know what form it would take. They were mm-hmm. predicting all these things. If you remember before the iPhone, there were all these things like there was the WAP protocol for, for low data web transfers. And there was all these payment tools that, the, that were part- partnering with the, the cell phone carriers. And they were trying to solve it from a different paradigm. And then Steve Jobs gets up one January morning in 2007 and, and changes the world. And it even took a few years from that to see how that was going to change. You know, that it, it, it's only in hindsight that you can clearly see what happened. Mm. But um, I think the mobile revolution changed. And then the other, the other change is Google. Google got ahead of their algorithm. Google started Panda and Penguin and, and the, the, the rest of the zoo. And, you know, we've seen a lot of customers weather it really well, but we've seen a lot of customers whose only advantage was SEO and mm. um, Panda and Penguin destroyed them. And they've had a hard time, if, in, if not completely disastrous time, trying to survive that. Mm. I think the thing you see today that um, has evolved is, and I think this is for the good, the edges that I see today are a combination of great content marketers with unique products and potentially and a lot of expansion in the business-to-business space. So let me give you some sort of broad broad examples. So one of our customers is a gentleman named Scott Jordan of Scotty Vest. He has his own clothes. He was on Shark Tank. He's a little bit famous for, for being very public and sort of loud, uh, at least here in the States. And um, not you know not super famous, but what he really does, what at the end of the day, what he sells is clothes with pockets, lots and lots of pockets, and they're hidden. So you can carry all your gear with you, but you don't you don't look like you're wearing a fanny pack, right. and, um, and 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 it's actually a great it's a great product thesis, and he's got a, a ten million dollar plus company, and the thing is is it's his brand, he manufactures the clothes. So at the end of the day, there's really nothing an Amazon, for example, can do. He can sell on Amazon all day long if he wants. Mm. And there's nothing an Amazon can do to really come after him. Now, Zappos, they have Zappos. So I guess Zappos could create its own line of similar products. But that's a different thesis where someone who's got their own product and their own brand and, and they have high margins or reasonably high margins, they don't have to worry about you know, winning by the penny. So, so what uh, I'm picking up from there is there's a direct-to-consumer rev- revolution going on where you know, manufacturers are using the internet as a channel, as a single channel to, to sell directly and reach out to their customers. But they, have a, they need a unique story to tell initially and to spread the word you know, out there about their brand. Is, is that, is that more, is, is, does that allude to, to what you said or? No, I think that was a very succinct way. That was a very succinct analysis of the story. And okay. so that is exactly what I'm saying. And we okay. see that not just, we see that at, at a lot of levels. We see that at the, you know, few hundred thousand, a million dollar merchant who's mm. um, very regional and local, maybe in a niche. Um, maybe they're in uh, a specific type of jewelry or, they're in a, a specific, um, like, you know, stand-up paddleboarding is kind of in that space right now, mm-hmm. um, especially here in San Diego because it's a very beachy town. So you see the stand-up paddleboarding stuff everywhere. I don't know that that's so popular in Oxford. But um, <laughs> in, but we're in land. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but but the uh, these niches are definitely going through that revolution. And we see it all the way up to, you know, mer- uh, merchants doing $100 million in sales and in the B2B space where they're trying to – where they're already established and they're trying to manage, how do I manage my channel conflict? And I think there's some, there's some fairly obvious answers that they can, they can follow where there are people who just prefer to buy direct from the manufacturer because there's a sense, especially if the company cultivates it, of better customer service. At least there's someone to call if there's a problem. So one thing we recommend to people who are in that conflict where they have a channel and the channel wants essentially some protection online mm-hmm. What we normally tell people is don't offer, you know, don't let someone else steal your online business. They're not adding any value to it. You need to control your online brand. And generally what I would suggest is don't go undercut your, you know, you can't sell it for less on your website than you would sell it to them at wholesale. Mm-hmm. You, you shouldn't actively try to, to, to crush them on price because what you really should be building on is exactly the thing you mentioned, a story, a persona, customer service. Um, if I have, if I manufacture, I'll use my stand-up paddle boards. If I manufacture my stand-up paddle boards and, and let's say I get on, um, Good Morning America and I'm doing lessons, maybe I'm famous on YouTube. Uh, mm-hmm. if I'm doing those things, I should be leveraging that. So when people search for me and my brand, 
I don't need to offer them huge discounts. Maybe I'm offering discounts on shipping or the standard conversion optimization stuff, but I don't need to get into a price war with my own channel. Absolutely, absolutely. And what, where do you see social you know, um, coming into this mix? You, you mentioned um, Google getting on top of its game and um, sort of out-gaming people who try to game it in the first place, um, Black Hat SEOs, and um, the, the revolution of mobile. Does, does social come into play in Web 3.0, so to speak, from 2010 to, to date? Not yet. Okay. I mean, and one, let me qualify that statement. Social is important, and, and even some things we're doing on the marketing front and some new products and features that I've seen in the e-commerce space, we have a partner company called um, Social Rebate, and they're very small, you know, small tech company, a few people up in Los Angeles in the Silicon Beach area, mm-hmm. but they have a couple products that let you essentially earn a rebate when you complete checkout. And then they have also versions that let you try to earn rebates before checkout. So you can sort of share and get credit. And we're seeing, and, and they're not, they don't, that's not exclusive to them. There's Sorry, what, what's, it, what's the name? Social rebate. Social rebate. Okay. I'll just take note of that. Okay. And they're not, they're not, they're not the only one with that technology, but their technology is, is nicely set up. They've got a great network. And what we're seeing in cases like that, and it's to specific products, Going back to my direct to consumer from the manufacturer example of Scotty Vest, you know, he hasn't actually launched this yet, but I'm convinced he'll do well. Or we have a customer, directfix.com, and they sell, you know, if you break your iPhone screen or your Android screen, they sell replacement screens and batteries and cables. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff. If I just spent, you know, forty bucks on a screen or what I don't know what they cost, and I can get four bucks back by posting on my Facebook wall, that becomes a win win. So you can get a virtuous circle. And it's, you know, there's a fine line because you know people can turn that stuff into spammy stuff, and, and then the noise can filter it out. I think social, at the end of the day, what's going to make social work for commerce is genuine discussion about products. And so it's hard to track that; it's hard to get attribution. Mm-hmm. But but if you know, you, I'm sure we've all seen this. You go to your Facebook wall or to Twitter, and someone says, "Hey, friends." Who do you recommend? Think about it in the most local sense. What do you recommend? I'm going out. I want Italian food tonight. Where do you recommend? And then you'll get a bunch of recommendations. Well, that's social commerce. Where the struggle has been so far is turning that from a passive or, or reactive activity into a proactive activity. But I, I think it'll get cracked. It's just not quite there yet. Right. Very, very interesting. Okay. Um, you changed – Miva changed its name in 2014, apart from the, the various other names in the 90s. Um, why you changed from Miva Merchant, I believe, to to just Miva? Was was there a reason why you you made the change in, in twenty fourteen? Absolutely, and it was a simple one. But um, when we bought the Miva assets back from the middle owners, mm-hmm. um, they kept the name, and we had a right to the Miva Merchant name, uh, essentially forever. Then they, without getting too into the weeds on this, they got acquired by another company, um, or that name did, and then they sold us the name back. So we always, it was always our preference just to be Miva, and it was a matter of um, the acquisition details that we had to be Miva Merchant for six years. Right. Okay. Okay. So, how many active customers does Miva have at the moment? Does, is it close to the to, to my estimate from um, built with the twenty seven thousand or? But- Builtwith's data tends to be very accurate, especially about us. But we see we actually use Builtwith a lot. So I, I I'm a and I, I get no referrals from them. They're not a, an official partner of mine on any level. But I'm a big fan of their product. I think they do a great job. The data is accurate. There's some, something to note about Builtwith and the difference between those numbers and and what we consider our active numbers. Um, over the life of our company, we've sold hundreds of thousands of licenses. You know, three hundred and fifty thousand to four hundred thousand total licenses. And, um, you know, at one point we were, you know, we had a larger installed base back when you mentioned finding us in 2005. At that time, our installed base was probably roughly equal to the peak Magento installed base. And so installed base, by the way, is, well, it's an interesting metric. It doesn't actually mean anything when it comes to if if you're not making any money off those customers. But we can discuss that later. (laughs) Um, So, but we had this huge installed base. And so we have actively roughly 12,000 customers on our software as a service platform. And so that's people paying us to keep their software up to date. uh, And most of them host it directly with us. We're a little bit different than a traditional what you'd see from a Shopify or a big commerce or Volusion. We specifically focus on the mid-tier clients as well. So we're not a standard multi-tenant SaaS solution. 
every installation of Miva is still a unique installation. We just built a cloud environment around that so that it can scale and be serviced as a SaaS solution, but you still get the benefits of if your store is doing really well, no one else is bringing your store down. And it really helps. We, we try to avoid single points of failure. There's other, you know, Salesforce, for example, if Salesforce has a hiccup today, which, you know, I don't know that Salesforce is so big they have hiccups that often, but if Salesforce has a hiccup today, it's not the end of the world for most people if they can't log into their CRM. It can be really annoying. It could screw up your day. But but e-commerce is unique. E-commerce is more like banking websites or banking relationships. Mm -hmm. They can't go down. And occasionally they do. But you really the, the level of intensity and uptime on an e-commerce site needs to be very different than almost every other website on earth. Right. I have two questions just to, 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 to follow up from, from what you just said. Um, one is, why did you make the decision to go SaaS in 2009? Because Magento was founded in 2009 as an install, you know, um, install platform. But you decided to go SaaS. Why did you bet on SaaS? rather than go down the way of Magento as, as software, as installable software on in, in your server? Well, I guess I would say that we had a different operating thesis, and there was different things going on. Magento did some brilliant things, especially from a marketing standpoint. So Magento really, in some ways, piggybacked on, on the WordPress revolution. Hmm. They focused on the open source revolution, and there was one other thing that was going on at the time that was very beneficial to Magento, which was that OS Commerce, and to some extent Zencart, but OS Commerce really had been the defining open source shopping cart. And OS Commerce basically had died. And Magento came in at the right time and went down that model. Now with that said, and even with all their user success, since eBay doesn't break this data out specifically, we don't know for sure, but, but I know what I hear through the grapevine, and I don't believe Magento's business model has actually been proven. Now what I mean by that is, I don't believe Magento's ever made any profit. They've lost far more money than they've made. And in the tech world, people sort of don't care, but we do. And so the reason we went software as a service was we've refused to take any outside money. And I wouldn't say that we're – we don't have, say, say, quite the same sort of zealotry that you might see from a base camp or what used to be known as 37 Signals, the guys who created Ruby on Rails. Mm-hmm. But but we're sort of similar to that. I mean, we just don't have – you know, we don't speak about it publicly and passionately, but – we wanted to build a company that we didn't lose control over that was profitable on its own right. I don't know. Are you a fan of uh, the new Mike Judge show, Silicon Valley? I haven't seen it. It's, it's, oh. it's not aired here in, um, in the UK. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I, I, won't go, I, won't, I won't make too many references then. But, you know, if you play in the venture-backed world, there are some winners. And it's a little bit like Hollywood. They focus on the one out of 1,000 or the one out of the 10,000 that become unicorns. And what you're not reading about in TechCrunch every day is the 999 other guys who poured their life, heart, and soul into something and walked out with nothing. And we decided that if we couldn't prove the business model as a traditional business, that it made, makes its own money in its own way, that we weren't going to go it. So, so that's sort of a long answer to why we didn't try to match Magento. We also weren't interested in going open source. So that was just a different of a philosophy. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So in the, the e-commerce SaaS industry at the moment is is quite a, a competitive space. And I think it's lucrative. So what where, where do you think Miva stands in, you know, um, across the board as compared to other SaaS e-commerce, you know, um, platforms out there? Well, I actually think a version of what I was saying about Magento is true in our space. And so on the low end, you have what I would sort of classify as Shopify, Big Commerce, and Volusion. Mm. And while Volusion was profitable for a long time and ran very sim- – from a financial perspective, ran on some similar principles to what I just mentioned, mm-hmm. they ultimately made a decision to, to take a bunch of money and, and try to build this enterprise product and, and go a different path. Mm-hmm. Um, Shopify, I think they, from everything I can tell, they they run their company very well. They have focused on a different end of the market than we are, but they're certainly, again, they're private, so I don't know for sure. But from what I can gather, neither Shopify or Big Commerce have actually proven the ability to make money with the clients they have. And the fundamental problem you have at that end of the space is you have large percentages of customers who aren't doing any sales because they're, they're not really entrepreneurs, they're entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And 
that's okay. And I don't mean that in a, in a disrespectful way. I mean it that they don't have a real business. And mm-hmm. so if, if your business model is people who aren't actually going to use your product but paying you a monthly fee, then you have a retention problem. And I don't know if you can fix exactly. that retention problem. And so, so where Miva stands, so, so that's how we see. So, when, so yes, it's a lucrative market. And I, you know, if, if I had to bet, you know, I'll probably, this will be claim chowder someday, but if I have to bet, I think Shopify will win the low end. I think they'll, if anyone's going to turn the low end into a business model that functions for a long time, my bet would be on Shopify. But I'm not sure that's a proven thesis yet. And I think that the mid market, the merchants doing 100,000 to 10 or 100 million in online sales, especially in the business to business space, you have companies that are willing to to pay, you know, I'm not talking astronomical money, but I'm talking the difference between, um, you know, an average revenue per client in the low hundreds per year to the low thousands. And so Miva's focus isn't to get a million clients that are giving us, you know, a hundred bucks a year. Our focus is we want, you know, in a perfect world, if I had 10,000 clients spending five or 10,000 a year with us, that's a huge, great business. And, uh, and so we're focused on that in the mid market. And if you look at built with, the the way I like to look at Miva, and I think Built With shows as well, is if you go under e-commerce and you go under enterprise and you just look at the whole market, right. we have the largest section of enterprise e-commerce stores. And that's really what we're aimed at. Right. Okay. So, so what's, what's the price point of Miva? Our prices start, you know, so we, we span both the small business and the, the, the entry-level enterprise. The word enterprise can be a catch-all too, right? Mm-hmm. So there's demand wears enterprise and they're a million dollars a year and, and we don't have any clients like that. So, but it starts at $50 a month and our biggest clients are spending three or 4000 a month. So that's the range. Okay, okay, makes sense. Right. Um, let's. So, so the reason I brought you to the show thirty minutes in, almost thirty minutes in, sure. is to talk about shopping cart best practices. Um, there's the, there's some myths I, I'd like to to burst and you know sort of clarify. So I have a couple of questions for you. Um, let's start out with um, my first question. One is it's 2015, and online retailers have to think about you know getting their stores to be device agnostic. Right, as well as the checkout pages, what advice and approach should should they take to deploy their checkout pages? Well, yeah, I that that question is um, that question is spot on. The number one issue facing any retailer today online, especially if they've been a long time on time online retailer, um, our preference for the small and mid sized market is responsive design, and so. We feel that you can have the performance and without the server-side load and then, say, going all the way to adaptive or having a mobile app. If you're a – the vast majority of our customers, even our biggest customers, their brands aren't big enough to warrant downloading its own standalone app like an Amazon. So I think responsive design is is the secret there and I think really just cutting out all the BS, you know, getting through it and – making it as simple as possible. I do think some of the checkout badges are very helpful on smaller screens, you know, a PayPal Express checkout and Amazon payments. Um, at, at this point, Apple Pay is not browser-based, but you have to assume, even, I, know, I'm, I know nothing, this is not inside information on any level, but you have to assume that someday Apple will find a way to let Touch ID validate a browser and Apple Pay will come to the browser. And those things make the difference. So the payment becomes the pain point. But the first step is making sure that you have a responsive web design and that the checkout flow is really designed for that device and that it adjusts itself to the device. Fantastic. Let's talk about the checkout flow. I'd like you to break down the steps and structure required for what you think is an optimal e-commerce checkout process or flow. Well, I think there's two. Mm-hmm. I think personally... For a first-time shopper, the optimal experience is very similar to Amazon's, actually. And, and it, Amazon's is three steps. Right. So it's um, it's all your personal data, then it's shipping and payment, then it's done. And so I think that's generally optimal. Uh, I think depending on what you're doing and the number of repeat buyers you have and what your market is, I think potentially storing a wallet on, on your system so that they can – you know, get through those same three steps without typing on the second time they come back can be very helpful. But that really does depend on how what your repeat buyers are. If you're selling broken iPhone screens, um, that may not matter. If you're selling uh, 
clothing that has, you know, that's very stylish and trendy and every two months people want new stuff, that becomes very important. Absolutely. How do you define a wallet? Well, so the wallets I was mentioning there specifically is I meant the wallet products by the big payment companies. So I was talking about specifically PayPal check, PayPal Express Checkout, uh, Amazon Payments. I guess to some extent I would be referencing things like uh, Visa Checkout, but that hasn't seen wide adoption, at least not here in the States yet. So the, the one that has clear leading adoption here in the States is PayPal Express Checkout. And the second to that is Amazon Payments. And there really aren't any others in the states that have any meaningful. And the purpose of those is they sort of have the same things that you'd have in your Amazon account pre-stored. So I put in my phone number and my PIN or or however I validate. And then I can just pick pre-written fields as opposed to retyping them. So I can say, okay, here, ship to my home address or ship to my work address and use this credit card. And so as opposed to having to type, say, 150 characters on my phone, I can make four or five choices with my thumb and, and have the same checkout experience. Fantastic. So a three-step process and um, the option to have a wallet to, to, to skip the first step, more or less. Yeah, essentially. Okay. And what what things actually annoy you? What should be avoided in, in the checkout? What, what are you seeing some merchants, you know, some of your customers do that – to you, it's, it should be an absolute no-no. And- <laughs> I see a lot of them. Um, the most common version of it I see is someone trying to do a complex checkout in one page. Now, there are times to do one-page checkouts, and I am not. Um, I am not a. I don't have a strong stance against them. But for example, if I'm selling a downloadable ebook, and I'm an information marketer then a one-page checkout may be great. I don't really need shipping information. I'm definitely not calculating shipping. right? I just need to let you give me some money and I'll give you the link. So it, depending on what you sell, that makes a difference. But I was buying a, a T-shirt yesterday. Um, and, and since I'm going to make fun of their checkout, I won't say who it was from. But it was an up-and-coming retailer, in, at least in the U.S. They're a new clothing brand that's doing a lot of ad, mass-market advertising. And their checkout was just horrible. It had poor error handling. So I think that's my first complaint when you're using the tab key on your keyboard to move through, I was doing it on my desktop. When you're using the tab key on your keyboard, it should go to the state field and let me choose the state or the territory. Absolutely. Um, same with the country. And then they had, they were using, they were trying to force it all into one page. And so they were using a ton of JavaScript to calculate shipping and do some other things on the fly behind the scenes. And it was really just a poor. If I hadn't been very committed to buying this T-shirt that I, I had been one, I'd been waiting for my size to come back in stock for like three months. And if I hadn't been very committed to buying this T-shirt, I would never have gotten it. I just would have given up. And I'd kept checking Amazon, and Amazon didn't have it. Um, so in this case, that particular checkout was really what it was doing is it was pushing away any casual buyers, and you had you were only getting really committed buyers. And I think that's the most common mistake you made. You want to, depending on what you sell make it really easy for someone to get through checkout. Now, there's exceptions to every rule. If you're business to business and I'm only selling to registered dealers, well, then a lot of those rules change, right? Um, And you still want to make convenience a factor, but you want to make convenience a factor for that industry. But in the business to consumer space, it's okay to be multiple pages. Make sure it's not too JavaScript heavy. JavaScript's a great language and, and we couldn't have the modern web without it. But if someone, if an average casual user gets lost, or if a pro user like myself is frustrated, it's a really bad experience. Right, right. So it sounds like your preference is multi-step checkout processes. Is would I be correct in? in yeah, that's my preference, and like I said, I think it varies widely depending on what the site sells and the purpose. Um, okay. You know, if you do free, let me give you an example of a business to consumer case where I would be thinking one step is fine. If you do free shipping on all cases. Then a one-page checkout, if you do free shipping and you don't use one of those wallets, you just do um, you do free shipping and you're using, say, Authorize.net or Payflow Pro for your gateway, you just take Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and Discover, and there's no shipping calculation ever. There's free, there's, there's free, there's two-day, and there's one-day, and, and they're always flat. Then I think a one-page checkout properly formatted can be nice, but I think where those get hung up on is if you're trying to calculate real shipping – and then that means you're using asynchronous JavaScript to do it, you're going to get in a situation that's going to be very hard to make it work, be device agnostic, which is what we opened with, mm-hmm. and work on the four or five different popular browsers across all the different OSs and now mobile OSs. 
they just it, it becomes problematic, and you don't have to have everything shoved into one page. I see your point. So you could have a dedicated page that handles the shipping, and you know has a lot of functionality, and then move out to confirm your your, your order. And there's a lot more clarity also um, from a you know I'm I know what exactly I'm paying for shipping at that step. Um, yeah, absolutely. Page. Okay. What about guest checkout? So, so um, there's been an argument um, on um, whether or not in major e-commerce blogs and, and websites as to whether guest checkouts are worth it or not. My question is, should they be encouraged? What, what's, what's your opinion on, on guest checkouts? <laughs> so my opinion, and this actually conflicts with our default software setup. Luckily, we're, we're flexible enough. You can do it both ways. But my opinion is this. I personally would not have an account process interrupt checkout flow at all. And I would auto create an account for everyone after the checkout. And so, and I see this, this is becoming more popular. So you go through, you check out, and then essentially in your invoice, it says, by the way, we created an account. Next time you come back, just use this email address and you can recover your password here. Um, And so that's my personal preference because you get the best of both worlds. There is some downside to that though. If you do that, and then I don't realize I have an account and I'm not comfortable using the, f- the forgot account, the forgot password button. Now, I, every time I go to check out, if it sees that I have an email already on file and it won't let me check out because of that, that's gone from a good thing to a horrible thing. Mm. So, but I think it comes down to the retailer's needs. Business to business accounts, for example, really have to have accounts. And, um, but if, you're, if you don't have a lot of repeat buyers, Forcing them to create an account or go through that weird screen where it's registered users on the left and create an account on the right and oop guest checkout on the bottom, which is a really common sort of structure. <laughs> that that page is confusing to a normal person. They're like, I just want to buy this thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you guys ever had Radio Shack in in uh, England, but here in the states, there was a time before Radio Shack's recent demise where you couldn't check out without giving them a ton of marketing information. Well, what's your zip code? What's this? And it was like, I'm just buying a cord to plug into my iPod. You know, leave me alone. And, and I think our customers are like that. Google Analytics had a great YouTube video a few years ago where they showed, uh, they, sh- they, they illustrated conversion optimization challenges. If you Googled on, or if you search on YouTube for Google Analytics conversion optimization checkout, you'll see they, they use it. They use a grocery store, a supermarket as a, as a case study. And, they show someone trying to check out at the grocery store and someone putting up all these hurdles for checkout and how humorous it is to see it <laughs> out in real life. I have seen that video. Yes, indeed. Yes. It's quite humorous. And, and I, think, I think the merchants, I think the, there's a rule of thumb they should follow. What's the best experience for your customer? And, and work backward from that as opposed to what's the information I need. And you want to start with what's the best experience for my customer and then how do I get the information I also need? That makes, that makes um, a, a lot of sense. Um, yeah, from from a guest checkout standpoint, um, I guess it, it, it starts out with the business fundamentals. Um, as, as you, if it's a repeat, you know, business, you want to create the accounts, and um, you know, if, if it's a one-off type of um, you know business, you you, you could encourage um, you know guest checkouts. Uh, I would definitely agree with you. So my next question has to do with um, how retailers can drive up their average order value at checkout. Do you have any tips to, to, to increase in average order value at checkout? Yeah. I mean, I, this is not my specialty. So I'm, mm-hmm. I don't have any data to back this up. I'm just going to base this on the fact that I shop a lot online and I see a lot of stores. I think properly using related products during the checkout flow mm-hmm. is very important. And so, for example, I just bought some pillows. And Amazon, I think, does this fairly well. I bought some pillows and Amazon said, hey – Buy, I don't even think I got a discount. I think they just said, oh, do you want to buy a hypoallergenic cover for your pillow? And, and then I said yes. And I bought two pillows with two hypoallergenic covers for my pillows. And then as I'm putting them on and then putting the pillowcase on top of the cover, I realized, wow, I just got talked into having two pillowcases. <laughs> and it was clever. But it, it increased the average order value. It took a, a, an $80 order and made it a $100 order. And so it was very clever. I think related products, customers who bought this also bought that is going to be your single best tool. That's if you're going to do it at checkout. I also think there's other ways post-checkout to you know, turn, convert people back into repeat shoppers or come back and buy more. You know, there is, it's, it's this old standard in sales. Once someone said yes the first time, once you've closed the deal, they're ready to buy more. So you should ask. 
Okay, so so what post post sales? What what are the real quickly? Um, what are the tips can you give post sales to to to, to getting them to, to to become repeat customers? So I think I think post sales. The first thing I would do is hey, um, right away I would send an email that said, "Congratulations on buying a new pillow. Had you considered buying you know hypoallergenic dust mite covers for them?" And just a real quick. Simple ad. I think merchants get hung up on, I don't want to send too many emails. <laughs> the problem is this. Emails at this point in time are like television commercials. And so, you know, it's don't, there are definitely companies that send too many, but most merchants I see don't send enough. So that's one way to do it. And then obviously you have abandoned cart stuff, which I think we'll talk about some of that later. But that is, a, I, I think just, hey, you bought this and you might have a better, you might improve your experience if you also bought that. And if you're telling the truth, if it's good content marketing, this sort of goes back to why I think Google's algorithm changes are great. It's how do you game their current algorithm without it being a good game, right? If you're providing good content, then everyone wins. <laughs> now that we've talked about ways of you know, getting the most out of your checkout, out of the checkout process, what about friction points? Where where would you typically you know where where should retailers typically check for friction um, where the like drop offs in sales or or turn offs basically to to converting um, to to actual sales at checkout? Sure. So I think the first thing they should do because I see a lot of merchants who haven't done this is the first thing they should do is set up a proper Google Analytics funnel. So if they've never done or at least some analytics funnel, but if they've never just done a funnel. So let's say you have a three-step checkout. Hmm. You, see, you see things in basket, then you see the customer information page, then you see the shipping and payment page, then you see the close, right? So you have ultimately four, four visualization points on a three-step process. Mm-hmm. That's going to show you at a broad level where your pain points are. Um, and, and they can range. You know, the standard ones are uh, shipping. Um, you know, customer was shocked by the shipping price and they bailed. The other one, though, I see a lot is their payment integrations aren't always correct. You know, one pain point I find probably more often these days than shipping is they've installed something like a PayPal or an Amazon and then they haven't QA'd it on multiple browsers and operating systems. And And I've had major retailers, like top 200 retailers, where I just want to check out with PayPal and it doesn't work. And it's not mm-hmm. PayPal's fault. It was their fault. And so to me, QAing your checkout and one tip I have is this. If a customer sends you an email or fills out your contact form or calls and says, hey, I was just trying to check out and, I, and this didn't work, I see a lot of merchants sort of blow that off, maybe because they don't have a good sense of how to fix it. But you need to chase those down like, like stories of UFOs. Like chase them down because that customer cared enough to call you and tell you, hey, I'm trying to give you money and I'm having a problem. You need to find it because if they're having that problem, there's probably 10 people who didn't tell you or more. And just really spend a lot of refinement process on making sure that shipping and payment work. Absolutely. Payment gateway integration is all about testing, testing, testing. I love what you said about QA. Right. So um, just to, to round up or you know, well, this section, um, what about shopping cart recovery? So there's uh, I was at um, an, uh, the IRX Expo. Um, it's a huge expo here, e-commerce retail, you know, expo. And I think one of the biggest subsectors in e-commerce solutions was, was shopping cart abandonment, you know, software and solutions. And and it's 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 really tied into you know shopping carts in itself. How how do you think it could be properly integrated into you're into a shopping cart um, in terms of recovering uh, a shopping cart or your, your basket, um, you know, sale, trying to get a sale in, in e-commerce? So I, I think the answer to that varies slightly depending on the size of merchant and what you're up to. But uh, first and foremost, the vast majority of merchants don't do anything. I mean, the the vast majority of merchants aren't doing any shopping cart recovery. So So something in this case is almost always going to be better than nothing. And I say just setting up a standard in the most simple way, even if you only got their email during checkout and then they bailed on checkout and 24 hours later you send them, it doesn't even have to have an offer in it. Just, hey, did you still want to buy this? I I think most merchants who aren't doing nothing would see some results from that. Now, I think there are some more optimal processes. I think a three-email campaign, 
I think trying to set a cookie and then using other marketing tools to calculate email address based on the cookie so that you don't have to have necessarily collect their email address super early. And I think getting the first cart recovery email out within two or three hours uh, are all things that if I was a traditional merchant, I would be focused on and at least testing. But but the thing I see most broadly is that most merchants do no cart recovery. I think they get really hung up on, oh, well, if I do cart recovery, I have to give an offer and then I'm going to train my customers to abandon stuff and get you know get the five bucks off. Right. Well, that, that, okay, there's, that, that may or may not be true. And, and the way to find that out is with data. So why don't you start with not offering an offer, just being a nice person and sending a nice email <laughs> um, and then see what kind of response rate you get from that. And then if, if it's a meaningful exercise and you have the resources, then, well, maybe you segment 20% of your list and try sending an offer and see if you get a big difference and start managing. And, and some of that stuff gets complex and a lot of these merchants are one or two-man shops. But for the one or two-man shop uh, or woman shop, they need to just get an email out that says, hey, thanks for visiting my site. Don't, don't forget to come complete checkout. That will go a long way. Exactly, exactly. Um, what about platforms? Would you suggest um, you know retailers actually build systems themselves, or um, do you have any platforms that you'd, you'd recommend? I think I think that really depends on size of merchant. So, for example, for our small for for the bottom you know seventy five percent of our merchants, there we there's a plug in for Mevo that's uh, it's very inexpensive. It's like fifty or sixty dollars one time and a couple hours of configuration, and it's it's basically what I just described. You know, you set up a single campaign, a single date trigger, and it just triggers emails at an X amount of time. And I think for the smaller merchants, something something like that, either as a, as an easy plug in or that's built into the shopping cart platform, would be all they would need. I think for the um, for the slightly bigger merchants, one of the ones that I like is Spring Metrics. So they have a Spring Metrics. They have a lot of marketing bells and whistles, and and they're still young, and they're still I, I believe I believe they're venture finance. So it'll be interesting to see how they shake out in the long run. But but I definitely like what I see so far. They send some nice daily analytic emails mm-hmm. as well as tools for doing it. Uh, Ad Shoppers is another one. Ad Shoppers I like a lot. Okay. They s- sort of are like a share this um, where you know you put buttons on your blog or on your e-commerce pages, but then they also have some some recovery products. And then I think for the big merchants, then you get into the Brontos and the List Tracks, right. where and the Exact Targets, where you need a, a full service product. But you need to be a pretty big merchant if you don't have enough cart abandonment to where the, a one or two percent swing in improvement is going to change your margins. Then those things are probably going to be hard to justify themselves. And, and the analytics, the attribution analytics on those platforms gets gets a little hairy because. They want to take credit for everything, which I understand. You know, hey, if someone ever clicked a link, I get credit. And the merchant always has this sort of nagging feeling in the back of their head that, well, that person was going to come by anyways. So I think it really, you need to be a bigger merchant to justify the big platforms. Okay, one final question before we round up um, around persistent baskets. What, what do you think about persistent baskets and how long should they persist? So I think that, you know, like most things, depends on the business model. But in my my preference is they should persist effectively and definitely, a la Amazon. But the caveat to that is to make sure that you don't have inventory problems or that you're comfortable selling something that's out of stock or at least having a stock check before they can check out. But both Apple and Amazon follow the same model where you have this persistent basket that's sort of persistent indefinitely. But if you're selling a one-of-a-kind movie posters, that doesn't work. And right. so it really depends on what you're selling. Ticketmaster couldn't go to a persistent basket, right? <laughs> no, so. <laughs> You'd have they'll, a problem. Count down, count you. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So all things being equal in a business to consumer perspective, I like long baskets. I think it's helpful. I think it will increase average order value. But but you need to make sure it fits your business model. What would be quite interesting is following into to what you said is um, if you could get an automated email saying you were running out of stock and you know you have stuff in your basket, but we only have one item left. Hurry. <laughs> That. Exactly, <laughs> that that kind of thing, and and so I do think um, I think persistent baskets properly managed are generally a good thing, but you know inventory can become a real tricky thing depending on what someone's selling, and and at the end of the day you need to have you need to make sure your operation functions. Okay, all right. I'm just going to ask you um, about books, resources, and tools um, you'd recommend to to retailers. Um, do, you, do you have any? Um, okay, let's start out with books. Um, what, what, what books um, on retail and marketing would you are your favorite in in retail? 
Well, I think there's a few, so uh, Avinash who works with Google and the Google Analytics teams. He has a couple books. I don't know the names of them off the top of my head, but if you if you go to uh, to Amazon and search Avinash A V I N A S H, I forget how to spell his last name. It starts with the K. And uh, Google Analytics or Analytics, you'll find some books. He has a book called Web Analytics 2.0, I believe. I'm not sure if there's been a follow-up on on there. Tim Ash has some interesting books on conversion optimization, um, which I've been a fan of. The Tim stuff tends to be focused more on the world of the desktop, but I think the principles are generally applicable. But there's a – I don't know that I have a favorite. I haven't seen a single – John Lawson has a book called Kick-Ass Social Commerce, which is fun. But but I think it's – I think it's good. I think it helps. You know, the number one thing I see is people analyze uh, anal- analysis paralysis. They sit around thinking about it all day and they don't do anything. Don't do it. Yeah. So, so just you know, start doing stuff. And if the books help you get off your butt and do it, then that's a great help. So that's, those are my good, book organizations. I don't have any one one book that must read though. Okay. What about tools? Uh, tools definitely. There's a lot of tools. So Google Analytics being the one that I see most often not used and is other than, you know, it's free. Now granted it's free and you're giving Google your data. So there is a trade off there, but for most merchants, that's an easy trade off to make. I think we use SEM rush. We use Moz.com, which used to be SEO Moz. Mm-hmm. I, I think tools like that are, um, they're very important. They help, you know, they crawl your site and they give you a, a sense of what's going on your site. Google Webmaster Tools. Google Webmaster Tools is sort of a, you know, it's, it's, it's Google focused and again helping Google, mm-hmm. but it's sort of a Moz and an SEM rush without those. Uh, I think those are my four favorite tools. Those are the ones that I log into every day. Fantastic. Um, yeah. So um, finally, could you let our audience know how they could, you know, find, get in touch with you or reach out to you if, if, if they wanted to? Sure. If someone is still listening after 57 minutes, I'm very impressed. Um, but two ways. So Miva.com, M-I-V-A.com. And then my email address, because I'm very easily available on email, is rwilson, R-W-I-L-S-O-N, at Miva.com. And finally, on Twitter, I'm Rick Miva. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being part of the show, Rick. Um, it's been amazing having you. And um, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of 2X e-commerce. To help you get more actionable insights and e-commerce growth hacks that will help you 2X your online retail business, hop over to 2xecommerce.com. It's a blog dedicated to e-commerce and multi-channel marketing run by the show's host, Kunle Campbell. 2xecommerce.com is packed full of articles and guides to help increase traffic to your store, increase repeat purchases, and average order value. Thanks for listening. Visit 2xecommerce.com.